Hi everyone. Hey. Today's scripture is Luke 11, 1 to 13. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your sons ask for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord.
been a surprise were it not for the fact that we, she and everyone else didn't know she was actually pregnant, let alone full term. The day before she'd been playing touch football with church friends. The night before she had a stomach ache, worried that it was something that she'd eaten and startled as we were to be woken at that time, we were delighted to be able to go to the hospital that morning uh, before work and celebrate the birth of their daughter. But this is the scene that we're confronted with as Jesus tells this parable. Uh, a visitor arrives in the middle of the night and knocks on the door requesting accommodation. Uh, the host, who receives the knock on the door, then goes to another neighbour and wakes him as well. This is a strange scene. And the question we're confronted with is what is Jesus trying to teach his parable in his parable? What is he trying to teach his what was he what was he trying to teach his disciples? What is he trying to teach us? So, before we have a look at this, I've got some introductory remarks. I've got four parts, um, and the first part has four parts. So four C's, starting with a caveat. I owe much of what I'm going to teach today from a sermon on this passage by Daryl Johnson, a um, Presbyterian minister from US, Philippines, um, stuff like that, who in turn took a lot of this from the work done by Kenneth Bailey, who was a, a missionary to Palestine villages and learn a lot about the local culture of Palestine that is then being able to help give insight into to some of what, what scripture is, is teaching. Second C, the context. The parable is part of a Luke sandwich within Jesus' teaching on prayer. Number one, the Lord's Prayer, an apparently familiar section of scripture many of us have memorised, perhaps without even realising all that Jesus is saying there. And then the second part, so um, sort of after verse 9, uh, Luke's version of the relatively familiar, our seek and knock, uh, as it is applied to prayer. Jesus is putting this parable in the middle of those two teachings about prayer to, to tell us something, something important about prayer that he wants us to understand as we, as, as we read those other sections. Thirdly, the characters. This is worth keeping clear in our minds as we, as we go through. There's the visitor who arrives, the traveller who arrives in the middle of the night, gets the whole ball rolling, nothing much else to do with the rest of what's going on. There's the host, there's you or us in the parable, who the visitor has come to asking for hospitality. And then there's the friend, the God character, a fellow villager, that the host is seeking help from. As we'll see, most of this parable is really about the friend. So finally, the conundrum. It's easy to read this parable as a parable about our role in making prayer work, how our boldness, how our importunity, or our shameless audacity, which is translation is this one, that's the, oh, it's a more recent NIV one. Okay, all right. Um, so, importunity, persistence to the point of annoyance, as the dictionary defines it, in prayer will wear God down or exasperate Him into answering our prayer. 
giving us what we ask for? Is that what it seems to be saying? During Bible study this year, we, we read this parable, and immediately afterwards, um, I'm not going to name names, but somebody declared the interpretation, oh, yes, so the squeaky wheel gets the oil. I, we hadn't even asked the question, and it was the interpretation. But, and at that face value, that seems to make sense. The difficulty being is that when we, we start thinking through, what, what's that, what does that mean? What, is that really what Jesus is trying to teach us about prayer? And I think it's problematic for a couple of reasons. This is our conundrum. One, it implies or inclines us into thinking that prayer works because of our boldness, our persistence, our shameless audacity. It makes it a lot about us. And secondly, it seems to paint a picture that God is able to be manipulated into giving us what we ask for, almost against his will. I, I think the work done by Kenneth Bailey, as I mentioned before, suggests that, that Jesus does not mean, Jesus did not just mean something different here in this parable. He actually says something quite different leading us to a radically different conclusion about prayer. So, as we start with that conundrum, part two, I'd like us to take us deeper into the conundrum as we examine the text. And I urge you to, to look at this as we, as we go through, or look at it in, in another translation if you've got one, um, and see how we go. Um, because we're going to be looking fairly closely at the text, and for those like you who, like me, really didn't like grammar at school, that's where we're going first. So let's spend a bit more time with this. It's going to be uncomfortable, but uh, stay with me if you will. So <clears throat> as we read this parable in verse 5, uh, the ESV starts with, which of you has a friend, and so on. Jesus is asking a question mark, so the question then becomes, where is the question mark? Where does the question end? What is the question that Jesus is asking? Um, the ESV and the RSV have a question mark at the end of verse 7. So the question goes something like this. Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing set before him. And he will answer him from within, don't bother me, the door is shut and my children are empty in bed, I cannot get up and give you anything. That's the question that the ESV and the RSV are suggesting is being asked. It's a long sentence, it's a long breath, but there's that. The King James Version just has the question mark at the end of verse 6. Um, <clears throat> Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, let me three loaves. A friend, a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. Yeah, maybe. And of course the NIV, as you can see in the, um, in, in the booklets, um, the New Living Translation also, they don't put a question mark at all. And they also use the, the phrase, that we're not which of you, but just suppose this happened. So that's, that's a first grammatical thing. But Jesus is using a form here of a question, and it's used in other places. It's, it's, a, it's a rhetorical question. The answer is, is implied. Jesus' listeners were expected to know the answer. And some of the other examples include rescue, rescuing an animal on the Sabbath. Um, 
Luke 14 verse 5, I'll just quickly read that for us. You can flick over there if you've got a Bible, but just listen in. He said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? He's, he's asking that question with everybody listening, knowing what well, we know exactly what we would do if that was the situation. It's rhetorical, and the answer is no. So the question for us is, if there's an assumed answer to this question, what is the response? And this is where it's, it becomes a little bit interesting. I asked, I, was, I mentioned to my mum and dad a week ago that I was going to do, do this parable as a sermon. And um, my mum, love your mum when you listen to this, uh, immediately said, you know, so, so if we, we just rephrase that part, uh, we'll answer him from within, do not bother me, the door is now shut, my children are with me in bed, I cannot get up and give you anything. Which of you can imagine that? Well, everybody, that's obvious. <laughs> yeah, of course you wouldn't get out of bed. My goodness, how rude. That's not quite the words that my mum said, but that's, that, that's the spirit of how we read this, don't you? you know, so somebody's coming and asking for bread in the middle of the night? This is, this is crazy. Go back to sleep, don't bother me, my children are in bed. That's, that's our natural, modern, western response. Our cultural context probably leads us to the wrong conclusion about what Jesus' listeners would have understood this question to have an answer, the answer to. So there's the grammar. I'm going to come back to some of this a little bit later. The second part of this, and this is, this is um, also grammatical, is the translation. So... This parable hinges on a single word which also happens to be really difficult to translate because it's the only time that it's mentioned in the New Testament and therefore, you know, it's hard to sort of put it elsewhere. In English, it's the word... That, so the NIV used to have boldness. It's now gone with shameless audacity. Um, uh, in other places, um, importunity in the King James Version, the ESV and the RSV. The Greek lexicon has shamelessness or importunity um, for, for that word. And Barclay, in his, his commentary, has shameless persistence. Uh, the NLT has, if you keep knocking, so it translates the thing and implies persistence. Um, the reason that, so just, if you have a look at what the text is saying, it's saying, because of this, he won't get up because he's his friend, but because of whatever that word happens to be, he will get up and give him everything he needs. So the whole parable is hinging on this one difficult to translate word. <sighs> so what is Jesus really trying to get at here? The other piece here that we need to see in verse 8 is who is this word referring to? About whom is it referring? Is it referring to the, the host who's come to ask the question? Is it referring to his boldness or shameless persistence? Or is it referring to the friend? Is it referring to the friend's persistent? Well, that doesn't make sense. They're referring to the boldness. Those things don't make sense. And so, even though the rest of verse 8 is actually about the friend, 
if you, if you read it, I'll tell you, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his, is his friend. He will rise and give him everything he needs. So that, that sentence, indeed the whole parable, is really about the friend, what the friend will or won't do and why. But that word, the way that we've got it as a translation, seems to throw it back onto the host and how he's asking and what he's asking or, or his attitude towards it. When the actual passage seems to be, should be a word that is about the friend and his character. Um, and that's where um, something like shameless, shamelessness, uh, and that's the, that's the conclusion that Kenneth Bailey comes to, seems to make more sense of the whole parable. But it makes sense once we understand the culture. So let's go and have a look at the culture. We're still in part two, by the way. Part two, part two. The culture. So the insight that um, Kenneth Bailey and others have had is that East is, is the culture of Eastern um, traditional societies, value systems dominated by avoidance of shame and upholding of honour. Western society is a lot about guilt and being right or wrong. Eastern society is saving face, being honourable and avoiding shame. And in the context of the parable, you know, the, 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 the village, the person, their reputation didn't have an Airbnb rating. They could go back and other travels to use. Yep, go and stay at their place. You know, they're four and a half stars. They're good. Um, it was all based on word of mouth and the reputation that the community had for um, the village, the person, and so on. So number one, shame-based culture. Number two, part of that culture was hospitality. Eastern cultural expectation was to provide shelter for travellers, um, which is consistent with the Old Testament teaching of, of, of God's deep concern for the sojourner, the widow and the orphan, of making sure that God has looked after you, you must look after those who are in need. Um, and, and hospitality was a big part of, of that. The hospitality and the duty to hospitality wasn't just about the individual's duty. It was the community's duty to be hospitable. Um, the whole village, the whole village's reputation was at stake in looking after those who came and visited. Um, so there's those sort of values, practically speaking, the visitor arrives in the middle of the night. Uh, the expectation was in showing hospitality that you would lay out a meal, and not just a little snack, something to drink before you go to bed. Uh, you just drink it on your own and we'll, we'll, we'll sort of go to bed when you're ready, possibly what we would do. Uh, it, it's, it's, no, we've got to lay out a whole meal. We've got to show that, that this person is welcome and more than welcome to come and visit. So it meant bread, it meant a, a meal, it meant probably some, some, some wine. Bread being, of course, the implement that you would use to, to eat the food. Um, it wasn't a knives and forks culture. But bread was cooked daily. Bread that was left overnight would be stale and old and unedible. Each family would have had enough uh, means to cook bread for their own needs, but, but not for a whole meal. So going to the neighbour and seeking bread 
was seeking the village's support to provide the meal and the hospitality for, for the visitor who came. Finally, these cultural nuances were things that Jesus' listeners were familiar with. Jesus was teaching this in rural Palestine of the day. This kind of hospitality, village life, um, these were things that, that, that he, Jesus' listeners were familiar with. Which is why he can ask the rhetorical question that he does. From our cultural distance, it's almost like he's making up this story to, to tell a point. And in some cases, some of these parables probably are those. In other cases, it's probably stories that are quite familiar. Imagine a sower going out to the sea. Familiar scene that Jesus draws a spiritual point from. This is likewise a familiar scene to those who are listening. People knew the answer that Jesus was asking. So where does this leave us if we go back to the grammar of the text? The question and its answer, I think the ESV has it right, that, that verses 5 through 7 are a question. But unlike the answer we would draw today, the answer Jesus, of Jesus' listeners would have been an emphatic, no one, no one, cannot imagine, cannot imagine that happening at all. That is ridiculous. It's laughable. Children are in bed, you're going to wake them? Come on, it's more at stake than that. So can you imagine someone getting up and making an excuse about children and animals if a visitor's arrived? No, 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 wouldn't happen. Second part is then, what is this translation? What is, the, what is this word about? So I just need to try to work through this so that it's reasonably clear. The focus of verse 8, as I mentioned before, need the whole story is the friend. Even though the friend is a neighbour, he isn't getting out of bed to be nice. He's protecting his honour and the honour of the community. Um, and so it is the friend and his commitment to remaining without shame, either, either, either being shameless or being without shame, maintaining his shamelessness, in the same sense as being blameless, um, that compels the friend's response as this friend, neighbour, comes and knocks at the door. So, Jesus seems to be teaching something quite different. This is about the friend, the God character in the story, will get up, not, not, not to be nice, but to maintain the honour of the village and his people. Um, to maintain the honour of, maintain his honour and the village's honour and give his neighbour all he needs. Jesus is trying to teach us that one of the reasons that prayer works, to understand prayer, how to pray, why to pray, what to pray, starts with understanding his Father, our Father, seated on the throne of heaven and very near at hand, who will uphold and sustain his reputation he will sustain his honour. He will answer prayer. That's, that's the kind of God he is. That's 
um, why we would pray. To understand prayer, prayer requires we understand who this Heavenly Father is. We pray because we understand not just God's characteristics, uh, He's almighty, He's invisible, He's God only wise, yes. There is His characteristics, but His character, well one, of his, one aspect of His character here is His honourability. God's commitment to hold, uphold his reputation, to be without shame. He is holy. He is good. And he wants to make sure that his children know that. So he will answer prayer and give us all we need. He, more than any human father, knows how to give, give, give good gifts to his children and he will do so. Not to indulge us, or just to be nice, but to uphold his honour, his glory. God is not fickle like we can be, generous to those we like and frugal with those that we don't. He will honour his promises. He will remain faithful to his covenant. I need to be reminded of this. God is, is, is not like me. He's not like even the best meaning people in my life. God can be fully relied on. His ways are higher than our ways and this is, this is really good news. It's really good news. So Jesus is trying to teach this aspect about God. What are, what are the implications for, for our lives? Specifically for the what, what does that mean for how we might apply this to prayer in our lives? Firstly, and this is part four, by the way, why does prayer work? Well, God is concerned about preserving his honour. God's honour is not a strong theme in our Western way of thinking. We're concerned about being free from obligation, not owing anybody anything. Um, we, we're uncomfortable accepting the obligation, obligations that come with upholding honour. The Lord's Prayer starts in its first supplication with, Hallowed be your name. We're asking God to uphold his reputation as God. Um, and there are many names for God in the scriptures. We're asking God to, make, to uphold those names. Um, Yahweh, the covenant bringer who will honour his covenants. We're asking him to honour that name and that reputation. Um, that his name would be in hell in high reproof. Fortunately, as we pray that prayer, as Daryl Johnson states, each of these petitions is something that only God can do. We're asking God to do what only God can do. Um, there's, you know, only God can uphold his own honour. Um, how does that feel to us? Well, is it a feeling of relief? The extent to which my prayers will be effective is not dependent on my righteousness. It's good to be righteous. That's, that's a good thing. The prayer of the righteous is true, you know, um, effective. James, it, it's good to be bold in prayer. It's good to be persistent in prayer. All of these things. It's good to have knowledge of God's will and pray into God's will for God's will to be done. All commendable things. But Jesus is trying to relay that God's commitment to upholding his honour 
as the Father who is on the throne of the universe, near at hand, who knows how to give gifts, give good gifts to his children. That's why we pray. What prayer looks like, bold and persistent, yes. But why? Because we know that God, God will answer. God will protect his honour. God will come through. So what honours God's name? Well, I think one of the things that's interesting in the parable is neither the host or the friend are looking to their own needs, but the needs of the sojourner, in this instance, the traveller. It's hard to, to read the Old Testament and not see that concern come through about others, those who are in need. Um, and it exhorts us to behave in the same way. The Lord's Prayer is all about us. It's all about us. Lead us not into temptation. Forgive us our sins. Not forgive me my sins, or I'm part of us, and that, that's also included. Give us our daily bread. What does that look like? For, for us as Fremantle Church to be praying that God would be giving each of us our daily bread. Not giving me my daily bread. Um, food on my table, but each of those members of Fremantle Church, what does that look like for each of the world Christian community to have bread on their table every day if we're praying that prayer? It's about us. It's about community. And while I don't think that, that praying for our individual needs is wrong, perhaps one of the things that somehow sometimes we need is to take the focus off of ourselves and be focused on the other, God's bigger plans. That we would reset our perspective on how his grace has equipped us for service so that we can live our lives for and with others whose needs are either greater or different from ours in community. Finally, uh, there's the little verse at the end, little little phrase at the end, which is lovely, uh, that I think is, is, is worth finishing on, more or less. It says he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Isn't that incredible? God will give whatever we need. Uh, this might have included pots and pans, food and drink. He may have been a bit grumpy getting up in the middle of the night. Yeah. But he was not unwilling or miserly in the giving that was taking place. When we ask God to give us our daily bread or to forgive us our trespasses, he's not begrudging in these things. He's generous. Giving a stone instead of bread is the last thing that he would do. Giving a serpent instead of a fish, down in verse 11 and 12, furthest thing from his mind as far as his children are concerned. He's wise in his generosity. He doesn't necessarily give us what we want, but he certainly exceeds our expectations for what we need. For example, through Jesus, not only does he give us forgiveness for our trespasses, he also provides the Holy Spirit so we can forgive others. I hope there are some things there that have helped us to place a different perspective on prayer. Of course, Lee's going to be talking about the Holy Spirit over the next few weeks, so it would be interesting to see what else comes out of the Father-giving Holy Spirit that we can learn from. But if I can conclude with this, at the outset of the passage, Jesus asked his disciples asked him to teach them 
Not how to pray, but to pray. Like them, prayer is probably one of the more difficult things for us to learn to do. We lead busy lives. We don't know the right things to say. The story, um, this story invites us to recognise one of the fundamental starting points of our prayer. It's centred on God and who God is. And it's my hope and prayer today that this story will help each of us unlock something new in our approach to the way we pray and help us indeed to be the prayerful people that I believe we seek to be. Let's pray together as we close. Father in heaven, um, we're so grateful to you that you are, you are good. You always know uh, what is enough and what is best for us. Pray that as we reflect on these words that you would help us to retain and understand what is from you and what you're trying to teach us right now. That those things that come into our heads, either through my words or through other means that are not of you, that we'd forget them and be able to, to focus and walk in the ways that you are leading us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.